Welcome to the first attic session of 2017 um, and we're here in the attic today with the poet Katie Donovan who um, published her most recent collection last autumn um, off duty and we thought it would be a good opportunity to um, get her here to just talk about writing, how she got into poetry, um, what next, having published five books. Um, so we're delighted to have you here, Katie. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Um, now, I've known you for, gosh, 20 years and more. Yes. Because <laughs> I think my first creative writing course was with you, or nearly, maybe my second one, um, back in the Writer's Centre in, right. in the early 90s. Yes. And I know how important that was to me beginning to have somebody like you reading my poetry and, and encouraging. So it made me wonder whether somebody had played that role for you or how, how did you actually get into writing poetry? Um, I guess I wouldn't have had an early mentor uh, because I would have been a child when I was writing poetry. Really? That yes, early? Yes, and I would have written rhyming ditties, just sort of fun things, not about anything very serious. And I would have been writing little short stories as well from way back. I mean, I decided at age four I was going to be a writer. That was very important to so me. So how did you know what writers were? Were there books around? Were your parents talking about writing? Like, how, how did you know? Well, my mother taught me the alphabet when I was very small. Yeah. I mean, two or something. And so I, I remember being able to read Enid Blyton books, you know, in my head um, before I was five. Yeah. So, so, I, so the act of reading was a very big deal for me. I just devoured fairy stories and Greek mythology and anything I could get my hands on, really. Every single famous five book there was. And so I just thought, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly it seemed the most natural thing in the world to begin to write just in old copybooks and things. Mm. But it wasn't until my teens, I suppose, that I began to take on more uh, dark subjects, as teenagers are prone to. Mm. And when I was 16, there was a boy in my class called Mark who had always been rather pale and rather quiet. And I had got to know him very well. But we didn't know that he had a very serious blood disease. Oh. And one day, just out of the blue, we came into school and had, were told that Mark had died very suddenly. It was very uh, shocking mm. for all of us. And we all went to the funeral. And I suppose also what really hit me that day was how inadequate the funeral was to address this huge shock. For me, anyway, mm -hmm. I saw it as a, as a travesty in terms of, of a, a ritual response to death. And it was the first real encounter yes, for you. Yes, because yeah. all teenagers think they're immortal. Yeah. And, you know, one by one, certainly by the time they're in their 20s, they begin to realise, you know, they lose someone special or they have a near, near brush with death themselves mm -hmm. or, or something of that nature. So this was my wake-up call, I suppose. And so I wrote what I considered to be my first real poem in that it wasn't a ditty. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't a nonsense rhyme. It was about one of the big themes, mm -hmm. which has been consistent in my work ever since, the theme of death and loss and missed opportunity. So, um, so I really go back to that poem yeah. from my starting point. And I didn't have a mentor. I had uh, an aunt and an uncle who were both novelists in London. I thought they were very cool and sophisticated. So I sent some of my early writings off to them, the poem about Mark, which appeared in the school magazine, and a short story that I wrote that appeared in the um, Irish press, which mm. in those days had a, a page specifically for young writers. 
And so I, I got uh, some feedback from them and they liked the short story, but my aunt was a little critical of the poem. She said, she said, well, I think actually if you had compared it to the death of a young boy from violence in Northern Ireland, it would have been more interesting. Oh, okay. Because that, that was in something I wanted to ask about, you know, when you get that first poem on paper, mm. like you suddenly become aware, okay, now there will be an audience and, and some people will know me, my family, what will they think? Um, how bothered were you by a reaction like the one your, your aunt had? Did it? I suppose I was blissfully unaware, uh, you know, I, and I think, I think I'm still like that, that mm. I go into this bubble of writing and I don't think particularly about how it will, will relate to the outside world, possibly until at the moment at which the two collide and I'm going, ooh, <laughs> I suppose, yes, people are going to be reading this and talking about it and how am I about that? And then I begin to feel a bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But I'm a bit naive, I suppose, at the beginning. I mm -hmm. just let loose with the writing without thinking about consequences. Mm -hmm. There have been poems that I haven't published because I was thoughtful that the person mentioned in the poem may not want, want that kind of exposure. So I haven't, always, um, I haven't always been totally naive. I have thought, I thought, I have thought a little of consequences. Mm. Well, well, you know, I suppose naive is one word for it. Maybe, maybe another is just the wisdom not to censor you, yourself before you start. Yes. And that, you know, it is just important to get the thing down first. Yes, and, and it is the writer's dilemma always. Mm. That is mm. a, a big, a thorny old, um, never-ending topic for writers. <laughs> so was that the point when you began to think of yourself as a writer too? Or, or how did that develop? Well, there was a sort of inevitability to to the more writing I was doing, and I was doing more as I got older, that I wanted an outlet for it. Mm -hmm. You know that that was important and 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 um, made me very proud to be published. But there was, you know, there was awkwardness with my peers in school, particularly. I wouldn't have gotten direct feedback, particularly from the uh, publication in the Irish Press, but in the school magazine, yes, it was pretty immediate. And uh, one of my poems was written in 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 anger and despair about having, you know, serious um, debilitating period pain once a month. And it was called, it had the very dramatic title, Because I Am a Woman, which of course I would never use now, but then I felt was very declamatory and, you know, made my statement. And some of the girls in my class just thought I was absolutely mad and were so embarrassed for me and mm -hmm. giving me these askance looks because I was talking about something which nobody really should have been talking about, mm. they felt. Which is, is, is an interesting sort of link to something else that I was curious about because, you know, I've, I've read a little about Yvonne Boland over the last while and, and certainly she seemed to be sort of conscious that she, when she began writing in the, the late 60s and 70s, was carving a very sort of lonely space for herself, trying to sort of reclaim subject matter for, for the woman writer. Yes. Um, did you experience that sort of sense that, that, you know, if you were going to be a poet, there were things that, you know, you could write about and things that you shouldn't write about? Like, Well, I suppose within my own imagination, I felt I could write about anything so long as I cared enough about it, because that was the impulse. That's, that's where the strength came, was the level of conflict within me and the desire to, you know, um, write my way through it. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when I saw those mutterings from those other girls about how they felt about the poem, um, I was quite surprised and, and a little bit hurt, but it didn't stop me. Mm. Um, it just made me feel 
yeah, a bit more lonely. Mm -hmm. And as we're speaking about Yvonne, may I just pay great tribute to the wonderful book that yourself and Siobhan Campbell have edited for Yvonne, full of poetry and essays. Honoured to be one of the poets included and well done on that. Well, I, I think she is an extraordinary figure for, for, for Irish poetry gen generally. Um, and for women poets, I think, you know, having somebody who achieves the sort of success, recognition, range of subject matter that she did, it feels in a way like she was opening windows for us. She was, absolutely. And when I first began writing poetry, I was reading uh, poets like um, Kavner, Yeats, Brenda Connelly. I wasn't reading women poets and there was a real sort of sense of Okay, I, I, you know, I love these poets, um, but I'm a woman, mm -hmm. and where are the women? So slowly, I suppose I would have been introduced to some of the the voices of women poets. Actually, ironically, by male friends and, and associates, I would never have heard of Sharon Olds if it wasn't for John Montague, for mm. example, who suggested I read her. And I remember Philip Casey, a, a dear friend of mine, another poet, bringing me along to um, a small and select reading. I think it was in Toners way back where Nuala Nagonal was holding court and reading her work, I was blown away. I so, heard about the series of readings and toners in, in the 70s because of course they do staccato there now. Yes, yes. But yes. Jerry Smith, who was reading at a staccato a few months ago, said that back in the 70s he was coming to, to well, there you there go. as well. Yes, so. yes. So, so it was very exciting to begin to discover the other um, voices of women that, mm. were, that were there and they were older than me and had gone a little further than I than I had. So there was a sense that, OK, uh, ground has been broken. Mm -hmm. And I also remember, again, way back in the day of Terrible Memory for Dates, but it was one of the first Poetry Now festivals in Dunleary that was just organised by locals. Mm. And um, the, going to a reading where I was, I was kind of the newcomer on the scene and Ivan and Nuala were the other two readers. And we were just in a room in the hotel, wow. like a small pokey little room. It wasn't a big ballroom yeah. or conference yeah. room. And but we had an audience and we, we were kind of waiting outside the door for the audience to get seated. And I remember thinking, this is a real moment. Yeah. I am here about to go and read my poetry with these two, you know, incredibly successful. I mean, they were just beginning, but to me as a little junior, they were already, they had already arrived. Um, other women poets and, and that was, that was really something for me. Mm. That was very special. But you, you, I, I came across when I was doing some Google research, uh, a while ago, uh, when I knew we were going to chat and I came across a reference to, I don't know whether it was your first sort of book publication, but it was an essay that you published in 1988 with Raven Arts Press and it was called Irish Women Writers Marginalised by Whom? Yes. And there's a question mark, yes. which is intriguing <laughs> because it suggests there's a certain standpoint behind that, that, that statement that were you questioning whether women were marginalised or whether we should be thinking about women writers and male writers as separate entities in the first place. What, what was behind that? Okay, well that I didn't, I didn't take on um, writing about poets in that little pamphlet, which was really intended to stir up debate. It was part of a series that Dermot Bulger curated called Letters from the New Island. Okay. And I had just come back from Berkeley where I had done an MA at the university there. And I, and I had been very aware of women's studies and the, 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 this whole new idea of reclaiming the woman's perspective and women writers, which was very exciting. So Adrienne Rich's sort of essays and people like that. Yes, yeah. and, and 
I suppose what I was still kind of smarting about was the fact that it was early days now. Um, but the idea of women's studies seemed to me to be a bit counterintuitive or, 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 or only away. a step. Yes, only a step um, along the way, I felt. Because often there would be like a little prefab building yeah. and the, the women's studies courses would be in there. And there was a real sense of tokenism, I suppose, mm. a little mm. bit like, mm. well, the women have been making a fuss. Yeah. So we'll just put them over there and they'll be grand. And so I suppose my question was, what role have the feminist publishing presses have? That was my opener. It's very important that they reclaim, for example, early women writers, you know, like Kate O'Brien or some of the ones that had kind of fallen off um, in terms of getting the attention mm. they deserved. It's mm. very important that they would reissue those those women writers and and that the likes of um, Ireland, you know, would would bring the new voices mm. forward. Mm. However, I felt that that kind of left the old boys club very smug and happy with themselves. The women had these small marginalised um, places where they mm. could be published and the mainstream was left still to the men. Mm. So I suppose my challenge was and I was young and arrogant and ignorant and, and I just come back from California. And brave. <laughs> um, foolhardy. <laughs> uh, I, I thought well ultimately surely we all want to be published by the mainstream publishers and you know fair wax to the likes of Ireland mm. but can we see this as part of a process where ultimately male and women, uh, men and women writers will be uh, looked at together mm. you know in an integrated tradition mm. Mm. and so I decided that was my, the beginning of the pamphlet and then I decided I'd go back and look at novels by contemporaries, one by a man and one by a woman, and, 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 and compare them in the way that the, the writers had approached um, certain topics mm. and in how they had been received, whether, whether this text had become canonical or not or had been forgotten and what had happened to the writers. And so that the main body of the pamphlet was really about that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of uh, contemporary feminists who, you know, who'd been fighting a long time just to get the likes of Ireland off the ground were a bit annoyed with me. Because okay. they felt I was this, you know, young pup kind of, what would I know about the struggle? Yeah. yeah. But interestingly enough, over time, a lot of Irish women writers are now published alongside the male writers by mainstream presses. Mm -hmm. So I feel that we have, we have, we have worked through the process mm. and come to a point that I'm happy with now at the age well, I am. Well indeed there are sort of uh, shortlists of prize that seem to be almost completely peopled by women writers these yes, days. It's, yes. it's you know extraordinary. The and certainly in the 90s there's a real sense of the women poets have arrived and in fact we're not really interested in the men anymore. Now I know that didn't go on forever yeah. it was sort of like a backlash yeah. but that was very exciting to begin to be publishing in the 90s and to feel there was this welcome yeah. and obviously it was all set up by the likes of Nuala and Ivan mm -hmm. and Ivan would have been particularly nourishing and gone out of her way to bring those of us in the next generation along. Mm -hmm. She wasn't selfish, she was going places and she was bringing us too. You know she would have written a lovely blurb for the back of my first collection and would have encouraged me to submit to North American journals mm. and I know she did that with a lot of other poets mm -hmm. she was very generous mm -hmm. yeah. so your first collection uh, was published by Blood Axe yes. the Newcastle based um, publishing house and and you've continued to publish with them throughout your poetry publish publishing career that's right so yes. how why did you go there I suppose in the first place and and what's it like having a relationship with the one publisher over that length of time like how you know well that's a, a lengthy question 
let's ask first of all how how it happened well I suppose I was producing a lot of poetry and when I came back from having done my master's in Berkeley my first feeling was I don't want to do a PhD because the poems that I had written ironically when I was doing an academic MA were what excited me almost more than the academic work I'd been doing so I thought this is something I want to keep doing and I continued to, uh, to produce poetry and be very excited by it. I didn't, I, I attended a workshop called The Oak, which I met in the Oak pub on Dame Street. And there were, I had a lot of um, contemporaries there, uh, like Siobhan Campbell, your co-editor of the Abandon. It Abandoc. turned into the Dublin Writers' Workshop subsequently. That's the, it. The Oak, yes, yes indeed. Yes, and Gina Bryan. And in, in many uh, writers who went, who have gone on to publish Maraid Maeve, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and, and do very well, this was our stomping ground. We were all equals. There was no kind of older figure who came in and sort of um, guided us. Mm. We guided each other. Mm. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I suppose I had a little literary community set up for me at that point. And we were all writing and we were all ambitious and wanted to be published. So we were all submitting to magazines and, um, you know, just trying to get readings for ourselves. And it, it was an exciting time, a feeling of great potential. And so the big breakthrough came for me was when Dermot Bulger, who, who I had sort of set up a link with anyway because he'd published my pamphlet, mm. um, was showed an interest in publishing six of my poems for one of his Raven introductions that he would period periodically put out, a um, little showcase of new, mm. new voices mm. in the poetry scene. So that was very exciting. So I um, felt that once I had that under my belt, uh, that I should be looking at publishing a collection. So, it, so I did submit to a few different presses and I suppose I was quite under-ambitious because I felt I'm going to approach those publishers, and I'm not going to name any of them, um, who might be most likely to take my work. Mm, now, mm. Blood Axe, I thought, w was the ideal, mm. but I didn't approach them first because I just felt I wasn't good enough. Sure. And I think that's something that women writers, ha they've always undersold themselves. And that was something that I did address in my pamphlet, um, that we need to be more confident mm. about how we pitch our work. Uh, but I, I of course, uh, had, the, ha had that, that sense of, well, I should just go and see where I possibly could get published rather than where I would like to be mm. published. But after having been rejected a few times, I thought, well, I might as well be rejected by the, by the publisher whom I most want to publish me. <laughs> that, you know, I, I was sort of inured to rejection at that point. But I'd also had a chance each time the manuscript was returned to me to improve on it and to make it tighter yeah. and to weed out some of the poems that weren't quite cutting the mustard uh, so that by the time I submitted to Blood Axe. I think that first book, Watermelon Man, mm -hmm. was as good as it was going to be. Mm. Of course, one always, as you know yourself, looks back on the first couple of collections and goes, well, there's a few weaklings in there and you know, maybe I would have been better to wait. But I'd waited quite a long yeah. time at that point. It was 1993, you know, I was already in my 30s. And I think there is a, the process has to end somewhere. I think, you know, yes. you can tinker and tinker and tinker and, and you know, people like Yates went back constantly throughout their life and changed stuff. But, but I think just to move on, yeah. you have to kind of let the thing go um, and, you know, aspire that the next one is better than the next one. And, and, and yeah. So, so what was it like having that first full book of poems out there? Did it change your kind of attitude to poetry to performance to people's reactions? Uh, I don't think so particularly. I mean, I would have given quite a few readings at that point anyway. So I would have gotten used to the idea of having to stand up and read my work mm. and, ha and enjoy it. Mm. I enjoy that aspect. I know some writers um, find it excruciating, but I like it. I like the, inter the live interaction. 
um, I like using my voice and uh, I feel that, and this isn't true of all of poetry, I feel my, my poetry has a life, as mm -hmm. a, as a, uh, it also has a life on the page, but it mm. does have a, a life in that context. Um, I suppose what I, what I was charmed by was the fact that I now had quite a lot of reaction to my work and it is true and I think it's lovely still that when a poet produces their first book there is this sense of welcoming from other poets. Mm -hmm. um, you're welcomed into the fold mm. in a way mm -hmm. and everyone goes easy on you because it's your first one <laughs> and there's a sense of excitement mm -hmm. and because I had an English publisher I was also you know included uh, on reading tours in the UK so that was nice mm -hmm. as well to get that sense of a wider audience. So you've stayed with them and, and uh, the most recent off duty is is the fifth book. Yes. Um, not counting anthologies which you've also edited that have been published by Blood Axe. So <laughs> What is it like, um, that sort of long-term uh, relationship between poet and, and, and publisher? Are there issues around sort of the poet's uh, desire to kind of write new stuff, that the publisher is perhaps preferring the older stuff? Or how, you know, how does it work in, in practice? Well, I suppose it's like any long-term relationship. <laughs> it has its ups and downs. But I... I I have been very grateful for that long loyalty. And that's all from Neil Astley because he's been there mm. from day one. He is very committed to producing a good book. And although he's produced many, many good books at this stage, he still gets excited and involved and interested and notices the book in terms of, you know, its large life, mm -hmm. uh, but also the tiny little details, mm. you know, the little sort of possible spelling errors and he mm. checks back on, you know, small persnickety things that. Mm. That is, that is wonderful to have that fine eye for mm. uh, working with me. Mm -hmm. He's also been quite hands-off in some ways, but I know that uh, if something's quite important to him, he will come in, mm. which suits me just well, just perfectly, because I, I like to feel I've got a lot of freedom, mm. but I don't like to feel I'm in free fall mm. either, the, mm. the, it, to feel that there is an, uh, there's another intelligence in the production of the book mm -hmm. that will um, enter the equation. Mm. So he has helped me, for example, in the first book, there was one poem that I was very keen to include and he just said, he said it doesn't have enough context. So together we worked it out that I would give a little subtitle and he said, now it's ready to be put in. Mm. So it was a very small little tweak, but it made the difference between that poem being included and not mm. included. Mm. And, you know, all the way up to the, the current book, um, he was, he was, incredibly encouraging because it's quite a long book but he did say at a certain point he said I think about half dozen poems could go and you won't lose the central thrust yeah. of the work yeah. but these poems are possibly could be held over to the next mm. one they just aren't quite germane to the overarching theme and we bargained a little you know because mm. there was one of the ones he said might might be contender to go that I was very fond of so I said well I'll take those five out but maybe I'll take this other one out instead of this little favorite that I want to keep and so he said that's fine okay and that was very useful to me yeah. to have that to be able to have that that uh, discussion yeah it's it's it is a really important aspect of the the publishing poet relationship that there's also mutual trust there and yes. you know understanding and and uh, giving the other person the sort of space to develop or change or or um, that 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 is very important um, so this this new book off duty um, has a very tough subject matter because a lot of it deals with the illness and death of your husband. Yes. Um, how how difficult a process was 
you know, uh, you know obviously the, 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 the subject matter was tough, but the writing of that, how, how difficult was that for you? Well, I suppose the writing, the, the, the first drafts of everything that I wrote for the book um, was not difficult. It, it was helping me to keep my sanity, mm -hmm. really, because there were many things that I was feeling always conflict um, during the long uh, process of his illness before his death. I mean, we're talking nearly six years um, that I could not say in any other way, because if you're living with someone who has a terminal disease, it's extremely difficult to claim any space for yourself because you, after all, have not been given death sentence um, and your role is as carer. And we had two small children. Uh, and so my role was also to be the parent for them because mm -hmm. he could not and sort of retreated into trying to deal with the illness. So it, it was it was not the dream. Mm. <laughs> you know, we had found each other, you know, in, in middle age and had become very excited at the idea that we would that we would make it just in time to have a family and that, you know, we'd done our traveling and we'd had our little short term relationships and had a lot of freedom. And now we were ready to commit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the fact that when our son was one, uh, that Stephen was diagnosed with cancer was just not part of the dream. Mm. And uh, so it was it was it was very hard to negotiate, uh, particularly the fact that the cancer went in stages. So mm. there would be the all clear would be given. Mm. So there would be a sense of, okay, well, we can draw a line under that yeah. and we can go back to having our happy family and... Release your breath. And, yes, and, yes, yeah. and, and, and sort of say that was very hard, but that's over now. Yeah. Uh, and and then, then there would be the news that, no, in fact, the cancer was back. Okay. And then there would be some new approach and we would put our hopes on that. Mm. And that's, that's difficult. I think you get very worn down by that mm. um, sort of cycle, mm. Mm. which went on, you know, for a very long time. So uh, privately, I was writing the poems uh, as a way of letting off steam. Sure. Yeah. And they're extremely honest poems. I think you're 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 very frank about all of the sort of range of emotions that people go through when you know a loved one is ill and sometimes you don't like the person very much yeah. you know uh, sometimes you're just trying to work out what you know your own position is in in all of this um, and it's almost that the person is lost to the illness before you know they're lost yes they become very very um, intimately related to their own health yeah and there really isn't much space for much else mm -hmm. and so the love relationship the man-woman relationship um, you know, that's very precious and also is kind of necessary if you're parenting small mm -hmm. children, mm -hmm. that kind of um, disappears. Mm -hmm. yeah. So do you, um, when you look at these poems now and when you read these poems now, how possible is it to get the sort of the, the detachment to actually be able to deliver them without sort of, you know, cracking up and breaking up and and, and, and sort of dissolving into tears at the... Well, the tears are often there, but I find that when I, when I give a poetry reading, there's a lot of emotion in all my work. Mm. And so I can be caught off guard myself up on the stage and find the tears coming. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any harm in that. Mm. I think, you know we, we know, we get a bit sensible and grown up and feel we should be very cerebral and cut off that part of ourselves. But I've found that that is the essential fuel 
for me mm -hmm. is, is emotion. Mm -hmm. um, often not the easy kind, mm. um, the kind that, that, that has you know, several layers to it. So that, that's, that's just very much part of it. But I think uh, it, it helps that it's, a lot, it's quite a long time ago. He's nearly six years dead now. And uh, that both his parents have since died as well. Because I wouldn't want, have wanted to cause hurt to mm. them. So you wouldn't have published this book while they were alive? No, no. And I wouldn't have wanted him to see many of the poems. So that I did publish a, um, a selected just before he died. Mm -hmm. But I, I made a choice, a very deliberate choice, as to where, where I finished in terms of my writings about his illness. Mm. There, are, there are a couple of poems mm -hmm. about his illness, the early phase of his illness in that book called Rootling, in the, in the new New mm. poems mm. section, mm -hmm. uh, but then I then I cut it there mm. because mm -hmm. I didn't I did tell him that his illness was hard for me and the children. I mean he needed to know that, mm. but I didn't want him to rub his nose in it mm -hmm. by showing him those poems. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I did make a choice in terms of timing and also in terms of what I was ready for. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so, the book kind of grew on its own. Uh, to a point where I had a, this large body of poetry and I was finally sort of in a place where I could have some detachment from it and see it not just as part of my journey through that time, but also as, as art. Mm, mm -hmm. So I spent a long time crafting the poems mm. as well. Mm. So there was, there was plenty of um, drafting. <laughs> so is, is there the catharsis of, of, you know, once it's on the page in one way, it takes the hurt out of it because it is now a, a piece of writing on a page as opposed to something that you experienced and went through. Um, it's difficult to, to be so cut and dried about it because I know when I was doing the drafting that, you know, that way I'd have waves and waves of feeling as I was, you know, attempting to be forensic as one has to be when one is drafting and sort of cutting and moving things around. Mm -hmm. so, so, so I found it, I think that's, that was hard, uh, particularly hard with this book. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I was reliving it mm. each time. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was interesting. I was I didn't know quite how I'd feel when the book came out because there was a great deal of shame in confessing to having not managed his illness and death well. Mm. I constantly felt like a failure, and the poems reflect that. And there was there was there was a sense of shame in releasing that into the world. You know, the, my, my the, great failure as a carer. <laughs> the, re the reader's reaction, on the other hand, would be how human and how honest. Yes, but I suppose we all have the shameful things that we do not want to release to the yeah. world. And then when we finally do, we realize, hey, it's okay. I'm yeah. just, you know, no biggie. just yeah, another, yeah. another human, another flawed person. Yeah. And isn't that great? We're all, there, we're all in it together. Mm. But when the book was finally finished and I had, I had finally done as much drafting as I could, although there's still a few things in it that I realize I should have been more careful about in terms, just in terms of typos and mm. punctuation, um, there was a sense of relief. Mm. There was a sense of a space of something being finished, mm -hmm. and that was good. So your children, Phoebe is 13, 14? 14. Has she read the book? She hasn't read it start to finish. She's dipped in and out. Yeah. And what has her reaction been? She likes the poem where uh, her cat Tulip has kittens yes. on her bunk bed. Yes. That's good. She likes that. But most of the poems she just doesn't really relate to and thinks they're a little bit weird or strange. Mm. And uh, my son Felix, uh, they both like writing themselves, uh, but not poetry. The, neither of them particularly interested in poetry. And Felix just feels it's just a bit of a shame that I don't get my rhyming better. 
So he's quite happy that I wrote a poem about his soccer team doing well. Oh, very good. Um, so there are certain poems they like, mm. but but my whole sort of literary life to them is not, not very relevant. Just not terribly interesting, and I think that's great. Yeah. I wouldn't like them to feel intimidated yeah. by it, to feel they have to live up to it in any way, because they'll find their own way. The child of the poet must be yes. a very difficult kind of role. Yes, well, so I try and sort of keep, I, I don't drag them along to loads of literary events. I mm. just sort of, every so often, I do expect them to show their faces. So they'll have something to remember when they're older and maybe think back on it. But I'd, I, I'd like them to be able to be creative in their own way mm. without any shadow from me or indeed from their dad, who was a very talented cellist. You know, they, they've got to find their own mode of self-expression and to feel free and uninhibited within that. Well, I'm, I might ask you to read the, the cat birth poem because it was one of my favourites as well, but, <laughs> right. but maybe two. So one, a choice of your own and my request would be, All right. would be nice. So the cat poem is called Arrival. And I'll read that first. We're a real cat family. I know you have dog. Yes. <laughs> and I do like dogs, but we have five cats and they're very much part of our family. And uh, Tulip, when she was a year old, she's uh, uh, tabby and white, uh, full of personality, uh, decided she was going to go out on the hunt for a mate. And we were delighted about this. This was all fine. And so she then had four kittens, which was a real delight to Phoebe, who was then, we got Tulip when Phoebe was five. So she was six when these kittens appeared. Arrival. Tulip, our new cat, surprises us on the top bunk. Four little tabbies, slick with afterbirth, are tongued and nudged to feed. She cleans up, devouring the placenta, nutritious and neat. Fifteen years since I last saw this, spring and my Tia, still a kitten herself, nesting in the wardrobe, mewing with the cramps, but knowing how to cope. Today the wheel turns, a new feline family comes to enchant my daughter's bedroom. She, Phoebe, keeps guard as the babies nuzzle and suck. Each fluffy scrap is named. She can watch for hours the drama of puckered faces and tiny claws. The purring of the mother, so deep, so loud, Phoebe claims she can feel it in her bones. That's lovely. And another one, perhaps. So this poem's called Operation, and uh, the first round of treatment that Stephen received was chemo and radiation, uh, and we thought all was well, but then the tumour grew again. And so the next option he was given was surgery, which was quite a tough decision to make because uh, the film director, Anthony Magella, who had also been diagnosed with throat cancer, had actually died as a result of the operation to remove it. So it was a 12-hour long operation, and um, you know any kind of head and neck surgery is so delicate anyway. So before before Stephen decided that he would have the operation, and, and the night before, there was very much a sense of this might be it. Operation. In the hospital, gowned in gauzy cloth, he is prepped. His limbs so thin, his head bursting with the tumour with knowing that wrestling the thing out may kill him. All day, the cutters and stitchers are at work, slicing from lip to clavicle, sewing bone, careful not to snick an artery, gouging a flap from his thigh to patch the gap where the tumour hid 
thriving in its secret lair. When it's out and they have fixed the jaw with a steel plate, riveted the long L-shape of the wound, he lies arrayed with tubes and drains. He floats in the shallows of the anaesthetic, his breath echoing eerily from the hole in his throat, his face utterly still. The night before the operation, he read Peter Pan to our children, and in the morning he surrendered, waving from the trolley, as if to clutch a last particle of the life we figured for him, as if to let it fall. So have you had um, much reaction from people who've gone through similar things, people who've yes. cared for people with terminal cancer? Yes, I have. And yes. what, what sort of reactions have you been getting? Uh, very positive, actually, because again, I would be afraid that I would hurt them in some way or speak for them in a way that was out of turn. Uh, I have had people coming up to me after readings and I've also had people contacting me through my website because I gave an interview on the BBC World Service which went out, well, it goes everywhere mm, really. Mm -hmm. So I had, even had someone from India saying um, how much they had enjoyed my honesty mm. and feeling that they were less alone. Mm. Absolutely, I think it must be incredibly helpful to people to realise that well, there's a whole range of, of uh, reactions and emotions possible when something like this happens. Um, yes. And uh, I'm sure, you know, that con consolation of poetry really, really people get from, from yeah, the Yeah, so that has meant a great deal to me. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a wonderful thing that you've done. Um, so what comes next? Do you feel like you've cleared decks in a way? or? Yes, well, I feel at the... Uh, I always feel this when I've written a book of poems. That's it. Uh, I just will never publish another book. Never again. I'm finished. Well, there is a sense that I'm completely empty, that I've given yeah. everything that was in the cupboard, and the cupboard is now bare. And I can't conceive of it ever being full again. But you have to go to the poetry shop and buy more produce. <laughs> well, what happens is that slowly, and I, I have to sort of just completely be unselfconscious about it, mm. because self-consciousness, of course, is the death of the writer, um, that slowly the, the old habit kind of returns. And I start shuffling around in the, the, the few that kind of didn't make it into the last book and that are still sort of hovering and might have a life mm -hmm. so in some other incarnation. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the old habit returns, mm. but um, it, needs, it, it, you know, it needs me to take my eye away. Mm. Yeah. Might a commission be nice now at this point, like if somebody came no. to you and said, we want a poem on? No, no, that's the death knell to me because really? I'm a total rebel. Okay. If someone says they want a poem on X or Y, I'll just go off and write about Z. <laughs> I mean, I have, I remember being a part of the Squantum over in Hay, Hay on Wye, which is something, I don't know if they do this, this is back in the 90s, I don't know if they still do it, mm. but a, a gang of poets were sort of put together and given a theme, and we had to go in front of an audience in a tent twice a day over a three-day period to say how we were getting on with mm. writing about mm. our theme. It was torture, and I was working away on this poem, which was a very slight piece, and was just getting done to death with all the scrutiny. And on the, the last morning, when I was in complete despair, I had, a, I had a long hot shower to kind of get myself ready for the last session where I had to read my finished poem, which was still, you know, pretty substandard. And an entire poem just came to me in the shower. Wow. So I hopped out, wrote it down, and it was great. And I sort of could somehow claim that it was on the theme. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked out. But, but that, was, that was really touch and go. So I'm not good on, on commissions. I, I do need a deadline. Like, I do need Neil to say, well, look, this is when I need your manuscript yeah. in. Yeah. 
because otherwise I could go on fleeting mm. away around it for, for years and, and, and not finish it. But, you know, but it has to be a loose rein. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. I, I hope Off Duty gets the attention and the prizes it deserves. Thank you. Um, and it's been a pleasure sharing the attic with you. Thank you. Thanks, Nessa. So thanks for joining us in the attic. Myself and Katie Donovan have had a great chat, so hopefully you Thank enjoyed you. it. Great to have you, Katie. Um, next month, February, we're, we're going to do something equally interesting. So please join us again, and thanks for watching. Yes, I know That I'm just a dreamer I dream Cos it's the closest I'll ever get to you